Hi, welcome to Forever Paranormal with Dr. Bill and Deb. The term paranormal refers to phenomena and experiences that are beyond the scope of normal scientific understanding and cannot be easily explained through traditional scientific principles. These phenomena often challenge conventional beliefs and are associated with the supernatural, metaphysical, or unexplained aspects of reality. As with any field of inquiry, it is essential to approach the paranormal with an open but critical mind, relying on empirical evidence and logical reasoning to draw conclusions. It's a topic that continues to intrigue and challenge both believers and skeptics alike, and if we can connect a paranormal element to it, we'll talk about it. You'll be surprised by what all can be connected to the paranormal. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and share the show, since it would not be possible without you, our listeners. And as a public service, we would like to let everyone know that you are truly never alone, even if you think you are. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is 988. Please just reach out. Well, hello there everyone, and welcome to this week's show, where we are going to fly into the Ken Ross UFO incident on its 70th anniversary. Hi Deb, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing very good. So, do you have anything new and exciting this week to tell us? I did run across a very curious story in AP News about the theft of an 18 karat gold toilet. The theft of an 8? You're shitting me. (laughs) No. (laughs) Would you like to hear about it? Sure. According to AP News, four men were charged over the theft of this toilet, which was at Blenheim Palace... which is where Winston Churchill was born. And it was valued at $5.95 million. Wow, that's a lot of money. It is artwork, and it was titled America by an artist, Maurizio Catalan. The title is what intrigued me. Why is a toilet named after America? I I wonder that, too, because Thomas Crapper invented the toilet, and he was actually a British plumber. But maybe it's due to the extravagance. I'm sorry, I'll quit interrupting. Go on. Well, this artist said it was intended as a pointed satire about excessive wealth. And um, this toilet was fully functioning prior to the theft. (laughs) (laughs) And people who visited the palace, it at one point was at uh, Guggenheim as well, before it was sent to Blenheim Palace, but people could book three-minute appointments to use it. Wait, you only get three minutes? Yes, that's correct. Um, The theft caused, they they removed it, and obviously it damaged the palace's plumbing system, and it caused damage and flooding to this building, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, that with filled with all this art and furniture. Wow! So that that created a lot more troubles 
Yes, I'm sure they're going to have more added to their charges over that. But um, another article I read quoted Catalan as saying, whatever you eat, a $200 lunch or a $2 hot dog, the results are the same. And if you can get it out in three minutes, great for you. (laughs) I'm just saying. That was really interesting, Deb. Thank you very much. Okay, so I know you have something else coming up, too. And you've got a big week coming up next week. You're going to run your first 5K with Wyatt. And I just wanted to tell you that I am really, really proud of you for doing this. I know you've been training hard for a long time to be able to do this. And I want to wish you and our son, Wyatt, the best of luck. Thank you. Okay, moving on here. Folks, this is one of the most bizarre incidents that you probably never heard of or hear much about, even though it made headlines and national news in both U.S. and Canada. And the different scenarios which were and are being stated by the U.S. Air Force is just absolutely crazy. But as we go through this strange saga... Let's not forget, on November 23, 1953, there were two men with families that have never been heard from again after being dispatched on an active defense mission to intercept an unknown aircraft. The first is the pilot, First Lieutenant Felix Eugene Moncla, Jr., and his radar operator, Second Lieutenant Robert Wilson. Both were seasoned personnel and Monkla had clocked over 811 flying hours, including 121 hours in a jet similar to the F-89C Scorpion he was flying, which he was also fully trained on, in both instruments and sight flight. Before we get too deep into this, we need to give credit where credit is due, though. Much of the information we have on this incident comes from the Freedom of Information Act records obtained by world-renowned UFO investigator Mr. John Tenney and from a book by former Marine Corps naval officer turned UFO investigator and author Mr. Donald Keyhole. I have listened to Tenney discuss this subject multiple times, and I can tell you the way he was able to get all, and I mean all, of the records of this incident was pure genius. If you want to learn more about that, I encourage everyone to seek out his work as it is truly fascinating. So are the books written by Donald Keyhole. This all started on the cold and lightly snowy night of November 23, 1953, when a blip appeared on the radar screen of the U.S. Air Defense Command Center radar over restricted airspace hanging near the Sioux Locks in Sault Ste. Marie. Monkla was scrambled and took off at 6.22 p.m. Eastern Time. Why are these locks considered so important? Well, it just happens, if something happens to the locks, especially in wartime, it would cripple both the U.S. and Canada because 100% of the iron ore used in these countries pass through these locks. Each year, there is over 80 million tons of cargo with an approximate value of $500.4 billion that pass through those locks. So that makes them very important, mm. especially crossing over to Bering Straits, coming down through Canada. 
uh, you know, if there was an attack from the Soviet Union or something like that. Once the jet was airborne, Lieutenant Wilson had difficulty tracking the unknown object, which kept changing course dramatically and drastically. So, with ground control helping to direct the aviators over the radio, the F-89C Scorpion gave chase. The jet was traveling at 500 miles per hour and pursued the object for about 30 minutes, gradually closing in and catching it. The ground radar operator guided the jet from 25,000 feet to 7,000 feet, watching one blip chase the other across the radar screen. Gradually, the jet caught up to the unknown object about 70 miles off a of Kiwina Point in Upper Michigan and an altitude of 8,000 feet, approximately 160 miles northwest of Sioux Locks. Ground control tracked the Scorpion and the unidentified object as two separate blips on the radar screen. The two blips on the radar screen grew closer and closer until they seemed to merge together at 6.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Assuming that Moncla had flown either under or over the target, ground control anticipated that moments later, the scorpion and the object would again appear as two separate blips. But they never did. There was a fear that the two objects had struck one another, but then the single blip of the unknown object continued on its previous course. According to one official accident report, the radar return from the F-89 Scorpion simply disappeared from the GCI, which stands for Ground Controlled Interception, station's radar scope. Is it accurate to say this is over water? Yes, it is, but that's kind of a confusing thing, as most reports say it was in Lake Superior at a latitude of around... 47, but then there is one report that was released in 561 documents that Tenney had gotten that states it was at 45 degrees latitude, which would put it somewhere around Lake Huron, which is way off of, of what it is. So I think most people are assuming that was just a typo in the report. Either way, or how deep would you say it is? Well, it's probably over 600 feet deep, something like that. The Great Lakes get pretty deep, and, and from what I understand, the area that it is is too deep for normal diving to look at and stuff like that. It would mm -hmm. take a, some type of submergible to be able to find it. So, yeah, it's pretty deep. Immediately afterwards, though, the United States Air Force, the United States Coast Guard, and the Canadian Air Force conducted an extensive search and rescue effort for days but no wreckage or sign of the pilots was ever found as of this podcast. How or why did the Canadian Air Force become involved? Well, the, the locks actually sit right on the American-Canadian border, and the running of the locks, or I should say the guarding of the locks, is performed by both countries. And Moncla actually was in Canadian airspace and back when he intercepted this uh, unidentified object. So right away, of course, Canada's always going to jump in. They have an interest. That's why both of them did it. So they were viewing the same blips? I, I don't know. I haven't oh. seen any Canadian reports. I see. 
But adding on to that, though, this is where the story starts to get strange. The Air Force's official news release about the disappearance delivered to the Associated Press, AP News, which Debbier likes to re- reference all the time, stated that the vanished jet was followed by radar until it merged into an object 70 miles off Kuana Point in Upper Michigan. The statement appeared in a story in the Chicago Tribune with the headline, Jet to Aboard Vanishes Over Lake Superior. However, though, in normal fashion, the Air Force soon retracted that statement and changed its story. According to the new statement, the ground control radar operator had misread the scope. In fact, the F-89 had successfully completed the mission, intercepting and identifying the UFO as a Dakota, which is a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 aircraft, flying some 30 miles off course. Lieutenant Monkla, probably stricken with vertigo, crashed into the lake during the return to base. But Canadian officials have officially refuted the account and still does. They say that's not what happened. And eventually the U.S. Air Force retracted that story. Even Makla's wife was given two official contradicting explanations. In one version of events, the pilot had crashed into the lake while flying too low. In the other, the jet exploded at a high altitude. Well, let's take a dive into this rabbit hole and start with the statement that Moncla was probably stricken with vertigo and supposedly suffered from it. Well, in many of the different interviews from his peers at the base and the different files which Tenney was able to obtain, there is no record or statement of any type that Moncla suffered from vertigo. Common sense tells anyone they are not going to scramble him as an interceptor pilot, let alone let him fly with known vertigo. Okay, but to me, here is the most important factor, that the vertigo statement is a line of crap. In the transcripts from the flight communication, Monkla stated he dropped his visor due to the snow, which means he was flying completely by his instruments and radar, not his sight. Now, I'm no expert on the subject, but I do know enough that the main cause of vertigo in this type of situation is connected to your sight. And if he was trying to see at night with just his eyes in the snow, it could possibly cause vertigo. But we know, according to the record, that he took precautions to prevent just that from happening. There was another statement that he possibly crashed due to a known problem with the F-89C Scorpion. It seems the air intake for the engine was just below the cockpit and was covered by a screen which would collect ice and freeze over in cold weather, cutting off the airflow to the jet. This one doesn't hold water either as the maintenance records for this particular F-89 shows that the Scorpion Moncla was flying had been retrofitted and the screen removed for cold weather flying. Yes, that, that is true. And in some of the documents retrieved by Kenny is the statement and testimony of Lieutenant Bill Mingenbach, who was in the air immediately after the incident occurred. On the night of the F-89 disappearance, Lieutenant Mingenbach 
was the pilot for the second crew, which was on a five-minute alert status at Kinross when the original scramble horn had blasted. Here is Mingenbach's statement as it's written in the official record, and it's written from an Air Force standpoint, so need to just understand it as I go through it. But we'll explain a little bit of it after we're done reading it. That's good. The lingo is hard to understand. Okay, well, here's what the report says as it is written. Lieutenant Mockley and I had been on five minutes alert on Monday afternoon, 23 November, 1953. The 15-minute cruise came on at 1700, stayed until 1745, and then left for dinner. They returned about 1815 and were about to take over five minutes from Mockley and I when the scramble horn blew once and Mockla was airborne at 1820. My RO and I had left the alert hangers for dinner at 1825, returned about 1900, and I called Naples requesting a CAP mission. Permission was received immediately, and we were airborne about 1915. I called Naples on Channel 10 at 1918 and was told the vector 330 degrees, angles 20, assigned call of Black Avenger, informed that radio and radar contact had been lost with Avenger Red and to attempt contact with him on Channel 10 until I was told to return to home plate by my RO. My RO made continuous attempts to contact him on VHF channels I, 9, 10, 11, and 1, and guard. During the climb out, I encountered a broken ceiling at about 3,000 feet and subsequent layers of overcast to angles, angels 20, where I requested an altitude change from GCI to angels 30. Permission granted, I continued to climb and broke out above the clouds at Angels 29. No icing encountered on the climb. At about 1935, heading 330 altitude, 25,000, my RO and I both believe we heard a short transmission from Avenger Red, recognizable as his voice, for about five seconds on Channel 10. He seemed to be in the middle of a sentence when his transmission broke through and therefore meaning was unintelligible. We called him back several times and received no reply. Shortly after this, we were vector 270 cruising at Angels 30 and control was passed to Pillow. My radio reception was very good since I was clearly reading Naples Vector Avenger Purple where I was 151 miles from home plate. Pillow vectored me over the area where contact had been lost by them with Avenger Red and requested that I let down in that area to investigate. Kinross weather had forecast moderate to heavy icing and snow showers for the local area. Since I was not sure that my anti-icing system was operative and did not have retractable engine screens, I hesitated to let down into icing conditions that perhaps had given trouble to Avenger Red. Also, snow showers, combined with the low ceiling over the lake, would have rendered effective search impossible in that area. I was informed that the request for me to let down had come from Horsefly, and therefore, Pillow nor Naples could do anything but have me orbit the area and continue to attempt radio contact with the lost aircraft. Finally, when Avenger Purple had come within 30 miles of my position, we were both told that Horsefly requested we return 
to home plate and land. A normal letdown at Kenross was accomplished under Naples control, light icing encountered between 17,000 and 6,000 feet, and I landed at 2055. Well, Deb, I can understand why you had some trouble understanding that because that's a lot of Air Force jargon right there. Yes. A lot of military jargon. So, Avenger, Naples. That, that's Purple. their call signs. So the RO stands for his radi- radar operator mm-hmm. who was trying to contact on to different channels. The angels is their altitude, the altitude that they're flying at, the different oh, angels. That makes sense. All right. So, horse, and it, and what then, about horsefly? Horsefly is another call sign, which is maybe from a higher up, oh. right? So they don't ever want anybody's name on the radios and stuff. So that's why everybody's got call signs and you're assigning them as you're getting taken off or whatever. A lot of times they're not the same. It's not like in the movie Maverick. What? You know, each jet, each mission, I should say, call sign is different mm-hmm. as it goes into its mission. What does vectored mean? Do you know? Vector is the direction. It's the angle. It's it's the degrees you're going at. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so let's move on there. Okay, so this pilot and his radar operator both claim to have heard Moncla on the radio at 25,000 feet. From what I understand, it is very strange for the pilots to receive an unidentified transmission on a military frequency with no response. It is stranger still to consider the fact that both crew members identified the voice as that of Lieutenant Moncla, who they both recognized by his accent and delivery. This is especially mysterious when one considers that the transmission was at least a half hour after radar and radio contact had been lost with Moncla's F-89 Scorpion. It must be remembered that indications are that several radar stations had been observing the F-89 intercept, so it is very hard to attribute this lost signal to anything other than the crash or disappearance of the F-89 by being taken inside the UFO. They weren't just out there flying around lost somewhere because they were not on anybody's radar. There are still varying claims and rumors associated with this case file. The Air Force's Project Blue Book report listed as saying the jet successfully accomplished its mission and that the crash was an accident probably caused by an attack of vertigo. It goes on to say that the abnormal radar behavior was due to unusual atmospheric conditions and deemed the inability to recover wreckage as understandable given the deep water. They don't include what their mission was and want everyone to believe the Canadian plane story even after Canada called the U.S. out about that one. And man, you know, we've heard the weather conditioning excuse for radar like this before. Remember like when the UFOs buzzed White House? That was just atmospheric conditions. Meanwhile, investigators from the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, otherwise known as NICAP, discovered that any mention of the mission had been expunged from official records. And the Aerospace Technical Intelligence Center's official line on the case was, there is no record in the Air Force files of sighting at Kinross Air Force Base on 23rd of November 1953. 
there is no case in the files which even closely parallels these circumstances. It's amazing how it just disappears out of some records, right? But it appears that even though this incident isn't well heard of, it still seems to pop up on the UFO radar every now and then. I think the latest was an internet blast in 2006 when some fictitious company called the Great Lakes Dive Company supposedly found the F-89 wreck and even found parts of the UFO they claimed. Of course, you could only see what they found if you would purchase the DVD they were trying to sell at that time. But it didn't take long for investigative journalists like Linda Moulton Howe to prove that this was all fake and even Great Lakes Dive Company's fake name owner Adam Jimenez really disappeared without a trace very quickly as it was all bogus. As I said in the beginning, let's not forget that 70 years ago two family men lost their lives that day in service to their country and the only type of memorial for them is the one Moncla's family put on the headstone of his empty grave in Moroville, Louisiana, which reads, In love and memory of Jean, Felix Eugene Moncla, Jr., First Lieutenant, United States Air Force, born October 21, 1926, disappeared November 23, 1953, intercepting a UFO over Canadian border as pilot of an F-89 jet plane. That's pretty harsh reality right there that his family put that on there you know that I, I do find it weird that we don't hear many of this type of reports anymore are they not happening or maybe they're just being better covered up and explained by so-called training mission casualties I don't know maybe they aren't happening anymore since Eisenhower purportedly signed a treaty with the aliens one needs to wonder. I, I, I really just don't know. Well, Deb, what do you think about this one? I, like many people, believe there has to be transparency in order to have trust in any situation. In cases like this where men and women have lost their lives doing their duty or job for this country, we owe it to them to be honest and transparent about what happened. Oh, I, I completely agree with you, but I was really asking more about, do you think that he just crashed his plane, or did he get taken by a UFO? What's your thoughts on that? I, I feel like I'll never know the truth, but I don't feel the truth has been um, reported by officials yet. So your gut feeling... Tells you that something he, odd. Something odd happened. Yeah, I agree. Something paranormal. Yeah. And what about you folks? Do you have any ideas, questions, or comments, or any information about this story? We'd love to hear them. And thanks for listening. And until next time, when we discuss another tale yet to be told. Thank you for listening. And remember to like and share the show. We would also appreciate a five-star rating wherever possible to help new listeners find the show. We welcome all questions or comments you may have about this or any other episode, and our contact information can be found in the show notes of this episode. You can also follow us at 
foreverparanormal.com. And if you'd like to support us, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash foreverparanormal. The links to these are also in the show notes of this episode. Yeah. <laughs>